0: Volume one, chapter eleven of Bungay Castle by Elizabeth Bonhote. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The design of Sir Philip in giving a ball was this evening made known, and the next day messages were sent out to invite the company for that day week. Preparations were instantly begun, and new dresses ordered. Madeline and Agnes de Clifford obtained leave to be of the party. AND SEVERAL OF THE INHABITANTS OF Bungay WERE HIGHLY PLEASED BY RECEIVING INVITATIONS. ROSELINE, ON WHOSE ACCOUNT AS MUCH AS THE BARONS IT WAS GIVEN, WAS THE LEAST GRATIFIED. ANY SCENE OF CHEERFULNESS TO HER WAS BECOMING A SCENE OF MISERY. HER SPIRITS DEPRESSED HER MIND, ITSELF A CHAOS OF CONTENDING PASSIONS, COULD NOT ADMIT A SINGLE RAY OF HOPE OR COMFORT TO CHASE AWAY THE GLOOM WHICH THERE PREVAILED she no longer felt either pleasure or consolation in her stolen interviews with her beloved walter which once afforded her such indescribable satisfaction they now saw each other with a tender despondence which served to deprive them of that resolution which could alone support them in those trials which no longer appeared at a distance and roseline sinking under the burden of her own sorrows felt herself totally unable to share in those which equally overpowered her unfortunate lover from whose prison she never went but he concluded it was the last time he should be indulged with seeing her walter heard of the ball which was to be given in compliment to his rival with that kind of contempt and trembling indignation which a brave officer feels at seeing some upstart stripling stepping over his head to preferment And by dint of mere advantageous events, obtaining authority to lead those whom he dare not have followed. It has always been said that the sincerest love could not exist without hope. In this instance, however, the assertion did not hold good, for though hope was lost, love maintained its empire, and environed with despair, lost none of that tender energy which had united two hearts under circumstances the most alarming and distressing. THE CONDUCT OF SIR PHILIP DE MORNEY SURPRISED ALL THOSE WHO WERE LET INTO THE SECRET OF THE PROJECTED ALLIANCE. THE BARON'S PRIDE APPEARED TO HAVE INFECTED HIM WITH A MANIA OF THE SAME KIND, AND THE UNPLEASANT CHANGE IT PRODUCED WAS NOT MORE inimical TO THE HAPPINESS OF OTHERS THAN HE SOON FOUND IT PROVED TO HIS OWN. HE WAS NOW SELDOM GREETED WITH THE SMILE OF AFFECTION. HE SAW LOOKS OF DISTRESS, AND HEARD THE SIGH OF DISCONTENT VIBRATE ON HIS EAR and whilst he condemned the obstinacy of others, determined resolutely to persevere in his own. How much it is to be lamented that with all the knowledge he acquires man knows so little of himself! How astonishing that a sudden and unexpected change in his prospects or situation should instantaneously work so unaccountable a revolution in his feelings, that he scarcely retains any recollection of his former dispositions! and still more strange it appears that while adversity serves to exalt the mind and purify the heart prosperity should harden and debase them about forty of those who had been invited to the ball returned answers that they would do themselves the honour of accepting the invitation roseline became so much changed in her looks appearance and manner that at length the alteration struck the baron and he mentioned it to sir philip this produced a second warm altercation between him and Roseline, which ended as the former had done, namely, in the want of resolution, strength, and spirits on her part, to contend longer on a subject so painful to her feelings, and so inimical to all her hopes and happiness. For Sir Philip now insisted, and that with a degree of unfeeling ferocity, that she should give her hand to the baron within ten days after the month was expired, which he had so foolishly allowed her perverse folly and caprice. Of this interview Roseline said nothing to her brother or the prisoner, but felt that her fortitude deserted her as time stole away, and with the deprivation of health and spirits, threatened to leave her an uncontending and helpless victim to the authority she began to doubt having power to resist. Still she determined, if dragged by force to the altar, she would resolutely and openly before its sacred font declare not only her unwillingness to become the wife of the baron, but her repugnance and aversion to the monastic life. At length the anxiously expected, the long-wished-for evening arrived, and produced an assemblage of as much elegance, grace, wit, and beauty as had ever been collected together in so confined a circle. From the social town of Bungay, some very lovely young women made their first appearance at the castle decorated to the utmost advantage and justly entitled to dispute the palm of beauty with many found in the higher ranks on this occasion it is not to be doubted but they cherished hopes that their charms would conquer some of the young officers appointed to guard the fortress on which the safety of themselves and the town depended from the earliest ages of the world the old adage prevailed none but the brave deserve the fair while the military dress shining sword and becoming cockade were ever found useful auxiliaries in assisting their wearer to find easy access to the female heart when dancing was ordered to begin the baron arrayed most superbly took out roseline and led her to the upper end of the room de willows followed leading Edeliza, who was dressed in the most becoming and captivating style and looked so enchantingly beautiful that he wondered he had ever beheld her with indifference or preferred another. Her expressive eyes told a tale so correspondent to the feelings of his own heart as completed its conquest, and the captivity was found so pleasing and easy it never afterwards wished to regain its freedom. Edwin danced with the gentle Madeline, Hugh Camelford with Bertha, AND THE REST OF THE PARTY DISPOSED OF THEMSELVES AS THEIR VANITY OR INCLINATION PROMPTED. THE DANCING WAS BEGUN WITH AVIDITY AND SPIRIT, WHICH SOME VERY EXCELLENT MUSIC SERVED TO HEIGHTEN AND KEEP UP. THE BARON NOT UNGRACEFULLY EXHIBITED HIS WELL-DRESSED PERSON, AND THIS GREAT PERSONAGE HAD THE SATISFACTION OF SEEING THAT THE EYES OF THE COMPANY WERE CHIEFLY FIXED UPON HIM WHO HAD PROCURED THEM THIS UNEXPECTED INDULGENCE. A circumstance unusual in an age when expensive pleasures were confined to the higher ranks of life, and by that means less coveted by those in inferior stations, which certainly tended to the good society in general, as it served to render all parties contented with their lot. We now often see, with pity and regret, if young people are thrown by chance into a walk of life some degrees higher than their habitual one, they seldom know how to return to their former humble path, without discontent and regret, which will too often lead them to sacrifice virtue and every real good for the frivolous nonsense of the dress and the parade of ceremony, while to obtain the enjoyment of pleasures destructive to time and real happiness, they will give up their peace of mind, not repent the poor bargain they have made, so long as they can live in style. Some few pitied, but a far greater number envied Roseline for having made so important a conquest and were surprised to see how little she was animated amidst the exhilarating scene of gaiety and splendour, wholly occupying the attention of one of the first barons in the kingdom, whose smile by most people would be reckoned an honour, and whose frown, among many, was destruction, from which there was often no appeal. Every rarity that could be procured was set before the party. Hospitality and festivity went hand in hand, and to a careless and uninterested spectator, it would have seemed that universal happiness prevailed. But it was far otherwise. Happiness is seldom found amidst a crowd. In the more retired scenes of serene, unambitious enjoyment, we have a much better chance of finding that rara avis, and of retaining it in our possession, if possible to be found. Sir Philip de Morney was tormented with fears that the obstinacy of his daughter would disappoint his ambition while the tenderness of her mother had so far subdued the influence of her pride that to see her daughter restored to her former health and spirits she would gladly have yielded up the honour of an alliance with the baron the artless and unaspiring roseline before she was brought into notice by the proud attentions of her noble admirer was a far happier being than she found herself at the moment she was looked up to as an object of envy but the simple dress she had been accustomed to wear was more conformable to her own unadulterated taste than the splendid habiliments with which she was now loaded and which the pride or design of her father had procured to throw a veil over her senses and tempt her to purchase those still more brilliant at the expense of her peace yet notwithstanding all the fascinating allurements with which she saw herself surrounded the court adulation and respect paid to her THE EAGERNESS OF THE COMPANY TO OBTAIN A SHARE IN HER NOTICE, HER HEART REMAINED WITH WALTER, THE UNKNOWN STRANGER WHO BELONGED TO NO ONE, WHO WAS WITHOUT FORTUNE, AND DEPRIVED OF THAT FREEDOM WHICH IS THE BIRTHRIGHT OF THE POOREST PEASANT. NEVERTHELESS WALTER, IN A GLOOMY AND SOLITARY PRISON, WAS AN OBJECT MORE CAPTIVATING AND FAR MORE VALUABLE IN HER EYES THAN THE LORDLY BARON IN A STATELY CASTLE when they had danced about half an hour after supper the baron apologized to roseline for withdrawing to make some alteration in his dress which he found unpleasant she felt herself gratified by this temporary absence and took the opportunity of chatting with some of her young companions deeply engaged in conversation with madeline and agnes de clifford she did not observe that her father was suddenly called out of the room and requested by the servant in a whisper to hasten with the utmost speed to the apartment of his friend. Too much surprised to inquire the cause, he instantly obeyed the summons. On his entrance, I will leave my readers to guess how much he must have been alarmed and shocked at seeing that friend extended on the floor with every appearance of death on his countenance. After trying various methods to recover him without effect, he ordered one of his people to call de Clavering to his assistance who, by some powerful and proper applications, soon produced signs of life. But it was nearly an hour before any of sense returned. He neither seemed to know where he was, nor why he saw so many people about him. At length, however, he recovered his recollection, said he had been very ill but found himself better, and requested to be left a few minutes in private with Sir Philip de Morney, whom he beckoned to sit down by the side of the bed on which he was laid the room being cleared and the door fastened to prevent interruption the baron grasped the hand of his friend and in a hurried tone at the same time looking around him in terror informed him that he had seen a spirit It stood there pointing with his finger to a particular part of the room sir philip appeared incredulous and his looks were not misunderstood believe me continued the baron it was no delusion of the senses I actually saw the ghost of my first wife, as surely as I now see you, and as perfectly as I ever saw her when alive. She glided out of the apartment the moment I entered it to change my dress, which I found too heavy for dancing. She looked displeased, frowned sternly upon me, and shook her head as she disappeared. Her countenance was as blooming, and retained the same beauty and expression as when i led her in triumph to the altar twenty years ago surely my lord said sir philip this supposed visionary appearance must be the effects of the disorder which attacked you so violently that it led to clavering as well as myself to tremble for your life say rather replied the baron and then you will say right the disorder was occasioned by the terror which in that moment indeed deprived me of my senses if I see you at this time, then I beheld the face, form, and features of my once-loved Isabella, of whom I was deprived by death in the infancy of my happiness six months after she had given birth to a son, of whom the same inexorable tyrant robbed me in the fourth year of my second marriage. Sir Philip found it was useless to contend with his friend on a subject in which he so obstinately persevered and though he was satisfied that the fright was merely the effect of disease, he thought it wisest to confine his disbelief to his own bosom, and drop the conversation as soon as possible. He insisted on remaining with him the rest of the night, and cherished hopes that by the morning this unaccountable vagary would be forgotten, or only remembered as a sudden delirium, occasioned perhaps by heat and the unusual exercise in which he had been engaged his offer of sitting up was cordially accepted, and the two gentlemen agreed it would be right and prudent to say as little about the ghost as possible, Sir Philip secretly trembling lest the baron's unfortunate whim should operate so powerfully upon his feelings as to prevent his fulfilling at engagements with Rosaline. This strange circumstance occasioned so much confusion and hurry in the castle that the party separated much earlier than they wished, and every one accounted, as their own humour dictated, for the sudden indisposition of the baron. One or two, mortified by their pleasure being so unseasonably curtailed, said the old man had better have gone to bed at eight o'clock, or not have attempted dancing in a ball-room when he was dancing on the verge of the grave. Sir Philip, with two servants, sat with the baron during the night, and in the morning de Clavering found him so much recovered that he advised him to get into the air, as that, with moderate exercise, he ventured to pronounce would perfect his recovery, and he would have nothing to fear from a relapse if he kept himself composed. But that same composure the baron did not find quite so easy to acquire as de Clavering imagined. The awful appearance he had seen was not one moment from his remembrance. It still flitted before his mental sight— and his tortured mind presented only Isabella to his view. She had frowned upon him, shaken her head, and vanished with a look of anger and contempt. With this regretted and beloved wife he had passed by far the happiest moments of his life. She was the first and indeed the only woman he had really loved, notwithstanding the world had unjustly branded him with being an unkind and morose husband." It had, in the respect, dealt by him with the same injustice it had done by a thousand others. The delicate frame of Isabella was wasting in a rapid decline from the moment she became a mother. He had adored her, and watched her as his richest treasure during the first month she had lingered with him after presenting him with a son. She expired in his arms, and the severest pang she felt was being torn from them forever. Why should she rise from the grave? why should she frown upon him who had loved her so sincerely he could neither comprehend nor reconcile to his feelings with his second wife he had lived several years but all the happiness he had found in the course of them was not to be compared with that which he had enjoyed with his gentle isabella in the short time he had been indulged with the pleasure of calling her his own by the second lady he had several children and it was the death of an only surviving son at the age of sixteen, on whom she had doted with an almost unpardonable fondness, which had occasioned her own. Having thus been deprived of two wives, and bereaved of his children, without having any near relations for whom he felt those prevailing and powerful affections which could lead him to practice self-denial on their account, he justly considered himself at liberty to endeavour to find happiness In the way to which his ideas of it were annexed, and therefore made the choice of the daughter of his friend Sir Philip to share his fortune and inherit such a part of it as he should find her worthy to possess, if she did not bring him those who would have a more rightful claim to it. He had no sooner recovered the shock and terror which he had so awfully and unaccountably experienced than he determined to persevere and accelerate all the necessary preparations for the completion of his marriage. He was now eager to quit Bungay Castle, and to return with the most convenient speed to his own, as he could not entirely divest himself of apprehension that he might receive another unpleasant visit from his Isabella, whom much as he had sincerely loved and admired when living, he did not now wish should leave her grave to interrupt those pleasures which he anticipated from the nature of his present engagements. Sir Philip, who from the first had suspected the baron's alarm and subsequent terror to have originated from a more natural, however unaccountable, cause than that to which he so obstinately imputed it, made all the inquiries he dared risk, without giving his reasons for so doing. But notwithstanding his most artful endeavours, the mystery remained unexplained, and he was obliged to leave it to time or chance to develop. End of chapter 11 End of volume 1